for December 4th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 492, Out of the Town, Into the Mind. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. We are your smart, funny friends from the internet, and we're never happier than when we're talking about TV, movies, video games, books, both graphical and textual, and we love to have you join us. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, As you may have guessed, our normal host, Mr. Matthew Rather, has been sucked underground and held captive by a tentacle monster. So I, Peter Fenzel, shall rise from my usual subordinate status to host this week's episode and i am joined by a mainstay and a oft mainstay but special guest as well uh first of course mr mark lee mark how are you today uh feeling a little upside down pete not gonna lie (laughs) excellent excellent and uh someone i'm always pleased to hear on the podcast jordan stokes jordan how are you doing today 1980s pop culture reference. (laughs) Spectacular. (laughs) So in case you haven't guessed, we are going to discuss this week the second half of Stranger Things, the Stephen King, Steven Spielberg, not Steven Seagal, but otherwise retro (laughs) Netflix TV show. We tried something new this year. We did a little bit of portion control. We didn't binge it all at once. We left one sleeve of the Oreo for all of you. And so we've done an initial episode on the first four episodes of Stranger Things, and we will now be jumping into episode five with the presumption that most of you who are going to watch it have watched it to this point to completion. (laughs) So we, uh, spoilers, warning for Stranger Things uh, 2, Stranger Things Season 2, Stranger Things The Second, which ends in rather climactic fashion, perhaps with even an even more climactic, even more uh, clear and definitive finale than Season 1 did. And uh, yeah, and, and I guess to refresh your memories and ours, we'd just like to start with, where were we when we were discussing the first four episodes of Stranger Things? Before we jumped in here, Mark, maybe you can start us off with a sense of kind of where we've been and, and pick it up to see where we're going because this is a show that does change over the course of the season and i think worth two different conversations sure um the the main plot line with the smoke monster and uh will as well i'm going to focus on basically where we last left off um will got taken over by the smoke monster um and that kind of uh was a real dividing line between the first and second halves of the season i can't remember specifically which episode it happened but it did feel like a real kind of like okay this is the setup and all right things are getting real Right now, um, Hopper kind of gets into the upside down of the underground, figures out what's going on, and then uh, Max is on the verge of being inducted into the party and introduced into the conspiracy. Um, and right. so with like those big setup pieces in place, the second half of the season plays all of it out. Oh, of course, and, and most importantly, uh, or very importantly, Eleven's character journey in terms of being really cooped up with Hopper and then uh, moving towards uh, branching out on her own and being able to self-actualize in that way, which she does in a big way, dramatic fashion at the end. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because she kisses it, a boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and because she closes the gate. 
Yeah, she meets her mom. She re- revisits the trauma that produced her. She revisits her own definition of social relationship, kinship, and love. She confronts her anger and pain and power. And yes, she kisses a boy. And it is up to you to determine which one of those events is actually the most significant for her character. Oh, she puts on makeup and pomade as well. I don't know, Jordan, <laughs> what do you think was the most significant aspect of Eleven's character development in the second half of Stranger Things 2? Would it be the part where she uh, screams into a large glowing vagina? Was it that? <laughs> uh, is, is, isn't that just another day at the office? <laughs> no, so, uh, so unpack that a little bit, Jordan. What do you mean about that? I just mean that there are um, there are many ways that they could have designed the portal that she was closing in that like very climactic scene where she's on the floating platform, like almost almost end of Terminator twoing it down into the uh, into the depths where uh, she's going to sort of perhaps sacrifice herself to to save us all and she begins to levitate and screams and then closes the rift right but the the visual language of that shot seemed suggestive to me (laughs) (laughs) somewhat so i think this connects us well into our previous discussions not just about stranger things 2 but stranger things 1 where we've identified and talked about some things we call the benevolent and the malevolent conspiracy which are intermediated by what we describe as sometimes a benign or malignant conspiracy that is is there's a small group of people, often the children, who get together in secret to try to solve some sort of problem, do some sort of good thing, save the world or themselves or something important. And then there are the evil people who are also in secret, usually adults in some sort of distant place, maybe aliens or something. And the there's, there's a sort of space between them where they're isolated from each other. And this isolation is at least partially conducted by the benign conspiracy, which we describe generally as parents. Uh, parents and parental figures and protective figures who separate the children from the evil adults, but in doing so often interfere with the action of the children to solve the problems that are caused by the evil adults. And that this is the interplay for a lot of these kinds of stories. And we were talking how in the first couple episodes of Stranger Things 2, this kind of is broken down. And and it's not broken down in the sense that it ceases to be the way the world functions, but it ceases to kind of be what the story is really focused on, I I feel. And and why I bring this up now, Jordan, is it does seem like Stranger Things 2 is leaving behind somewhat, especially in this back end, the landscape of the social and is leading more into the landscape of the psychological, wherein the the enemy is – well, it's it's – a symbol of Eleven's what would you say it has to do with birth and motherhood and the sort of theft of the mother of the the wounding of the motherness, I guess, would be one way to describe the Yonic villains, because they all are Yonic, right? They all have the Yonic being, of course, the, the counterpart to Phallic, having these sort of open, gaping uh, spaces that, that threaten and empower uh, as such. But it seems like we're kind of venturing out of the town and into the mind this season. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, because maybe that's a little oversimplification. I mean, I, I think that definitely there's part of it. I would question the the idea that all of the all of the monsters are Yannick. I, there's at least one that's phallic, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, <laughs> but point taken. But we will get to that. <laughs> point taken, <laughs> as it were. Uh, oh dear. Uh, but I, I do think that there's something. That, that it gets a little like Carl Jung, right? Uh, that she has to descend into this abyss where there's this sort of like glowing. Um, kind of like moist 
right fissure that she then needs to close and that doesn't seem like a socially constructed thing it seems just like because of the visual design it feels like that's biological somehow and then it also feels like a something that she has to like go into her head to confront right because she has mental powers um and i do think that there are several characters that go through go through things like that there's there's less of a sense of the kids being limited by being kids um when they do stuff like just ditch school or whatever there's never a sense that they're going to get called on it so in, in a sense that kind of like those mediating layers of um the the bad guys and the uh the good clique of children and then sort of the normal adult society that tries to keep those two things apart becomes kind of less important um to, to a degree you could make the case i think that um that Max's brother, what's his name, Billy, uh, the like the the awesome Hesher character, who is maybe not so awesome, but that's like what he's supposed to be, right? Uh, Unpack that. What is awesome Hesher? Well, a, a Hesher is like the kind of guy he is, right? The person who who listens to a lot of heavy metal, but rather than wearing um, goth makeup and a leather jacket, wears like a jean jacket and drives an awesome car. Ah, right? I did not know that term. Thank you very much, Jordan. Appreciate yeah. it. Uh, Hesher, or sometimes even Hessian, like is is a is a, a, a term that's sometimes used, and. Uh, I don't think that this is like a, a youth culture that exists all that much anymore, but you can you can find them in movies a ton. Gotcha. Um, so like you know like uh, White Snake, that's his name, right? Um, he, like the Lost Boys would be Heshers. We talked about the Lost Boys a bit in past episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and because he sort of confoundingly seems by the end of the series to, so far to just be sort of a, a Hesher who's kind of a jerk to people, he is like the normality that is getting in the way, right? And sort of has to be dispensed with so they can go deal with what's really a problem. But because he's inimical to everybody um, and just a giant jerk all the time, it doesn't have the same kind of poignancy as when it's like the kid's own parents parents doing that that kind of shielding move to them yeah i mean yeah. there's a different thing going on with billy right and that i guess is that his biological father who comes and abuses him and uh both physically and psychologically uh, towards the end of it right so he is the victim in a certain way of another type of conspiracy or just like you know straight up bad parenting um yeah. and so it, it complicates uh that kind of neat uh breakdown of conspiracies that we saw more in the um in the in the first season um, and not necessarily to the betterment of the show. I mean, the, you guys might yeah. disagree with this, but um, this was one of uh, what I thought was several diversions or sort of, you know, side characters that came up and uh, distracted a little bit from the main uh, through line and conspiracy that was going on. Yeah, I'd say so. I feel like they didn't quite stick the landing with him. There was a couple of scenes really late in the the run where I feel like I began to get what they were doing with him, though. And I think it's a, a worthy effort that, again, they just like they didn't quite pull off, which is that his thing where the father is abusing him and he then is processing this by doing this very elaborate performance of being an asshole. And it, like, I, I use performance advisedly. There's a scene where he is staring at himself in a mirror, like playing with his lighter and fluffing out his chest hair and stuff like that. And you suddenly get the, the idea that, Oh, it's not like this is, this guy feels like this cliche 1980s, you know, character type because Stranger Things likes to play with that. He's that type because he has seen this in a movie somewhere. And this is like what he feels he needs to do, what he feels he needs to be, to be like the right kind of man that his father will not beat up, you know, to be, to that, be pro- yeah. 
appropriately manly. And then that is the same kind of thing that you see a whole bunch of different people doing, like, uh, you know, Eleven most most notably in response to a, a science fictional trauma, right? So there's kind of a, a rhyming between his gender performance and her gender performance. And it's seen, like, to me, it's like, oh, so this is a very real coping mechanism that is now playing out in the sort of heightened grounds of the upside down and all that kind of stuff with uh, with L. So in a way, even though he doesn't relate to L at all, he makes her more grounded by showing that this kind of thing does go on in real life. That's really interesting that you're bringing this up because I feel like this connects to you identifying it with Young a little bit too, in the sense that these are characters that have an active collective subconscious of images and stories and people that are psychologically present for them in much the same way those characters are psychologically present for us. That Eleven has to sort of that, – that, that pomade mullet has to exist before Eleven is going to don it, but it exists in this sort of phantasmagorical space along with Billy the Hesher. And just as we recognize it when Eleven puts it on, she sort of recognizes it when she puts it on, maybe. It yeah. seems like maybe some dimension of that. And like her her version of it is the sort of like um the what is it MTV 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 mall punk I think is what they call her her thing where she puts on the eyeshadow and everything. Um, what's interesting about that though is that like it's sort of like there's this one layer of all these cultural tropes and symbols where you can like argue about who gets to be Venkman and that kind of stuff, and then there's also the upside down. Right. Which right. is kind of like that's uh, if we're going to go all psychoanalysis here, like now we're getting into Lacan territory and that's the real where it's just like nasty biological stuff um, that will only destroy you if you if you touch it and meddle with it. And yet is omnipresent and can never be escaped, which I think right. is that sort of that's to me is the message of that final shot of the school dance. And then the camera rotates and the upside down is like still there. Right. Um, that. uh Really, we are like living in this film of soap over the bathtub of uh, of hormonal nastiness, and um, th- there's no actual escape from it. Like you can close it yeah. off and keep it wrapped up, but there's no way that you ever are truly free of it because it is what's actually there. Now, is that? Could you explain for those who are unfamiliar? I'm a bit less familiar, but for those really unfamiliar, can you explain Lacan a little bit more? <laughs> I feel like we're pretty. I'm pretty comfortable with the existence of Young, and I feel like people understand kind of the Red Book and this collective subconscious and, and all the stuff associated with that at least a little bit. But Lacan's a little bit more esoteric of a figure for a lot of yeah, people. for sure. And honestly, like. Every time I've ever heard somebody say, okay, so first I need to explain one or two things about Lacan. It has turned out to be a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess that's fitting for Stranger Things, right? (laughs) (laughs) But but I'll I'll say this much, and those of you who are listening and do know about it, you probably want to just stick your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 because I'm going to simplify so much that it will just offend you. But um, one of his ideas is that there's sort of a a threefold subjectivity that we all have, um, one of which is the symbolic order which is stuff like language and the law and social convention and uh, sort of the way things ought to be. Um, And then there's the real, which we only ever experience like 
in the womb and shortly thereafter, as soon as we start to understand things, we're doing that symbolically. Like the real is something that we don't have access to. Um, and then the third thing is the imaginary, which is what from within the symbolic order we imagine the real to be. Um, and there's a, this is actually not a quote from Lacan, it's from Zizek, but he says that like the, the real is kind of like the flesh of an insect or a, a shellfish beneath the shell. And like it doesn't have a shape of its own, which of course is not true. If you've ever hulled a shrimp, you know, you know that it's perfectly shaped under there. But it's a vivid image that you can imagine if you poke through the shell, there'll just be this sort of wet thing that recoils from your finger. And it's unwholesome precisely because it doesn't have a real shape. Um, so there's this idea that we have, and part of his, his theory is not just like, oh, this is what it's really like, and no one ever knew about it. He thinks that we all kind of go through life um, reacting to this, that everything that we think about the way that things are isn't actually an adequate explanation that like there's something deeper to it and that thing can never really be seen sort of definitionally. Um, and it has to do with things like our biological drives and stuff like that. So like think, think about the Freudian id, but it's sort of a, a different way and an expansion on that, that concept. Um, a lot of the stuff that's in the upside down feels, feels real ish to me in that way. I like that. I, I like that a lot. Um, it's it's squishy. It's it's gross. It's uncomfortable, <laughs> like the upside down. Um, you know, on the site, uh, uh, Rachel D uh, has theorized that the upside down symbolizes some sort of like post uh, nuclear apocalypse, like an alternate dimension. That's like um, you know, a few years ago, uh, a real life, a real history, a historical event occurred where um, nuclear apocalypse was narrowly uh, averted. Um, because like some Soviet uh, mid-level officer decided, no, let's not unleash the nukes, even though the computer was telling him to, um, and that what we're seeing is just like this alternate universe where the nuclear exchange actually occurred. Um, but what you're saying, Stokes, is that it, it sounds like the upside down doesn't really need, need to have like a neat, uh, tidy sci-fi explanation like that. It can just be the horror and dread of the realness underneath the yeah, school yeah. dance, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like it's so it's it's basically it's their it, that's their hormonal selves. Right. Like if they didn't have stuff like I mean, it's the the bio teacher who's sitting in the corner making sure that you don't slow dance too close. Right. So in a way, that bio teacher is society. It's just a set of rules for keeping you from slow dancing too close. And uh, and it's, we don't really need the bio teacher sitting over in the corner of the dance. We have the bio teacher sitting inside our heads, sort of policing us all the time. You take it away. And then what you have left is the upside down. So it's interesting to consider that the upside down might be something different symbolically in a, in a big sense in each season. That the upside down, because I do feel like Rachel uh, hit it on the head when she identified the upside down as being a nuclear fallout scenario yeah. in season one. But yeah, in season sure. two, yeah, I, I totally am buying your reading of it in season two as a, as a Lacanian real space uh, of uh, under of sort of underlying psychological. Uh, inexpressible urgency. Uh, this, that's the sort of smoke monster crawling down Will's throat, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it raises an interesting question about about the advice that Bob gives Will, which is what dominates the the effects of this, or what dominate the second half of the season, which is that you should confront the monster, and if you tell him to go away, then he'll go away. 
which in the framework of Lacan is not at all how it works. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> like, yeah. it's not even how it works in Jung. It's definitely not how it works. I guess it's how it works in Freud. You would, like, confront the monster and identify sort of the truth of the monster and then sort of recognize what part of the monster you are, and then you would come to terms with it, which is not what this season is about either. <laughs> but uh, but the sense of Lacan turning turning towards the primal reality of existence and saying, go away, is, is it's, it's uh, <laughs> that's not a situation where... Uh, where the mountain's going to come to Muhammad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I not... mean, my impression is that those people who do actually practice Lacanian psychotherapy, like it's much more about turning towards that and saying like, yes, this is what's going on. I Maybe I can live with that, right? right. Um, <laughs> which is kind of what the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what the bad guys are sort of doing, right? That's what the uh, the, the department of energy, doctors, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I do think then that in in the first series it was a lot more about nuclear annihilation. And I think that they spent a lot more time in the Upside Down looking at like the buildings in the Upside Down and how messed up they are here. Whereas most of the Upside Down stuff in uh, in the second season is like this network of tunnels below the town and it's impinging into the real world, right? So it's this weird kind of biological space, biological slash natural rather than structures. You do get to see the high school, but even within the, um, the Upside Down, like the high school school is relatively safe compared to outside the high school. And it's when Will runs out into the field that he ends up getting really in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so so that's kind of like, um, I would say that it, it, both metaphors are present in both seasons, but I think that it's more about uh, nuclear annihilation in the first season and ends up becoming more of this sort of like, it's about teenagers and their hormones thing in the second season. Mm -hmm. So with that pivot to teenagers and their hormones, can I tell you my penis theory? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure, Jordan, definitely. Let's. Uh, what, what do you have to say about it this season of Stranger Things with regards to the phallus? Yeah, so this is something that I like. Um, we we were going over this in Slack saying, hey, what did you think of the end of the second season? And I, I eventually, um, like well after everybody else had abandoned the conversation, I was like, so I keep thinking about the fact that uh, both um, both Dustin and... Um, Lucas. And Lucas, right... Uh, they they violate the rule of law. They lie to their friends and like say that do something that they said that they were not going to do, right? Um, and they do this in different ways. So Lucas tells Max about the monsters and the government conspiracy, and Dustin hides Dart from his friends. And they even like have a fight about this later on, where they're like, "Well, we both did bad things." And Lucas is like, "What are you talking about? Your thing is so much worse than my thing." <laughs> right? um, so like, it, it works on many levels because it's like just it's nice plot mechanic stuff, and it makes an interesting conversation between them when they're processing their hurt feelings about it. But if you read it allegorically, like sort of what's going on here is that. The boys have this comfortable group identity as children. That's the party, right? They're like they're kids who play D and D together. Um, which I'm sure there are many people out there who would argue against this and point to their own lives as proof that this is not true. But the show definitely thinks that D and D is like kid stuff that kids do. Um, and puberty is now forcing them or allowing them to individuate from each other. And there's kind of like a socially adaptive and a socially maladaptive way to do this. Lucas's solution is good. He goes and he talks to a girl. 
Um, and I think it's interesting that although obviously he has a crush, he doesn't spend a lot of time hitting on her. He like he treats her as a person and reads her into the secrets and brings her into the group, which is something that she really wants. You know, she's she's desperate for communication and friends, um, and yet he also is quite open about the fact that he's interested in her. So he he does it in a way that like I think as scripts for how to talk to girls for, for like for for budding pubertal males go the show does better than a lot of the ones that are, that are out there um so that's like the good script in a way um and dustin's response to puberty is that he turns inward and becomes obsessively fascinated with his own penis which is what Dart is. <laughs> so hear me out all right dart is first of all kind of phallic shaped right right yeah um and you have to keep him under wraps all the time. You can't wave him around in the daylight. Mm-hmm. And he's driven by basic pleasure drives, right? He eats, and what he loves to eat more than anything else is nougat, which if you think about it, we've all had Halloween uh. roll through quickly, right? <laughs> think about, like, Milky Way and Snickers and Three Musketeers. Like, nougat is sort of the base sugar, right? It's, it's just like a very simple pleasure drive with no kind of complexity to it, right? That's what Dart is interested in. Um, and then there are a bunch of other things. Like, there's a thing where, um, where Dustin's riding around in the car with Steve Harrington, and he's like, well, Dart used to be this big, and he holds up his hands. It's like, and now he's this big, and he holds them further apart. Um, I will refrain from making the the joke about slaying pussy, but it's there. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what, really oh, drives God. It, what really drives it home for me is when, um, when Dart gets loose at the school, and Dustin finds him in the bathroom stall, and he sticks him under his hat. Right. And like this, this seems like a very like thinly veiled uh, metaphor or maybe even metonym for the phenomenon that that boys of that age go through where like you get an erection in a public place and you've got to hide it. And then he does these like these awkward <laughs> attempts to, like I've got to get out of this conversation so nobody discovers this thing that's hiding under my clothes. Like I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm going to be real awkward. I'm going to run away from this. No one can know. No one can know about the ravenous flesh worm. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, like, for most of the season, they played out as a morality tale where, like, Lucas is doing the right thing and Dustin is doing the wrong thing. And you can sort of imagine a version of this where, like, uh, at the end, Dart ends up uh, killing Dustin while Lucas and Max slow dance at the Winter Ball and sort of teaching you there's proper outward directions for these urges and a bad inward direction for them. But that's not how they actually play it. Like, they end up both making valuable additions to the team in a way. The fact that when they're confronted by all of the demo dogs, Dustin sort of, like, knows how to deal with Dart uh, shows that, in a way, what he's been doing, this... this introspective contemplation, right, of, of primal drives <laughs> is actually useful in navigating the space within which those drives dwell. So that's right. that's uh, that's my theory. You can take it or leave it. <laughs> I mean, what I would I think it seems pretty feasible. I, I would I would add a dimension, though, to the ending of the story, because Dustin comes to his equilibrium with his situation, his sort of socially acceptable equilibrium, because he relates to the the other person who has a hidden phallus, which is Steve Harrington and his bat with nails in it. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Which, and, and which is funny because in Steve Harrington's arc over the course of the season, we see him not use his bat, not use his bat, not use his bat, and then finally use his bat. And it's interesting that the use of the bat is done for the protection of children, which seems to be sort of a procreative argument for sexual energy. <laughs> this idea that it, the appropriate way for him to do this, it's, it's, about, it's about boyhood and manhood, I think. Yeah. Uh, but also, of, of course, of protectiveness and such being associated with manhood. It's, it's interesting because I've been kind of confounded by Steve's fight with Billy and what it means 
in considering yeah. it in the context of this season. And the way that you've described Dustin's uh, relationship with Dart as being, well, homoerotic in the sense of – so that's that's a term. We've talked about this on the podcast before. People often – uh, oversimplify the notion of psychological homoeroticism to refer specifically to uh, orientation, identity, and preference with regards to sexual partners, but don't consider the respect to which homoeroticism is about the exploration in relation to the self outside of the context of uh, actual or potential sexual partners, right? Like, uh, like when when Steve is having confrontations with Billy in the shower. Yes, there's this issue of sort of male and male, two male bodies, but there's also this issue of Steve confronting the person that he might be. And it's sort of like this man person that he might become, which is which is brought into the spotlight because of the end of his relationship with Nancy. Because so so I guess and I'm sort of unpacking this in real time, but the idea being that in its arc in season one of Stranger Things, Steve goes from being a huge jerk to being a socially integrated person by means of his relationship with Nancy. And he comes to care about Nancy. And in doing that, it sort of brings whatever energy Steve Harrington has had in this world into the social sphere in a way that everybody is okay with it. And because season one is social and it's about how people behave towards each other in groups, then this is how Steve kind of like is pacified. And by being pacified, he becomes uh, good and better. But in season two, it's not about socialization. It's about psychological, uh, psychological uh, integration. And so Steve loses his relationship with Nancy or, or ends it or what have you. And in doing that confronts the harsh cruelty of his masculine capability, his, his sort of monster at the end of the book, uh, as it were, which is, which is Billy. And and instead, and he knows that he has this capacity for violence, and, and or or nastiness, which he shows a little bit in the first season. And then at the end of this season, he figures out that the the answer is not to deny it and not to deny who he is, but to go out there with a baseball bat that is his phallus and and use it for his sort of like coming of coming of age as a man from a boy. And it's just it's just it's interesting to think about that arc in the context of how Dustin finally resolves his dart issue is by having Steve's pompadour hair. <laughs> right, like he, right. he has this sort of crest, this sort of like rooster crest, this this sort of peacocking that's happening, which yeah. is supposed to bring him to sort of a comfortable place with relationship to this uh, this comos or what have you that they're all like dealing with over the course of the story. I don't know. What do you think about yeah. that? I, I love I love it, especially the idea that like I like how uh, I mean this is probably just physically necessary, but like Dustin gets Steve Harrington's hair, except it's not Steve Harrington's hair because only Steve Harrington has that hair. But like, but you get your own. Steve Harrington hair. It's that's the Willow of Good, like the magic was in my finger kind of moment. <laughs> uh, but, oh yeah, yeah, but yeah, I think that that's uh, that's really kind of interesting. So that um, he towards the beginning of the the season when. Uh, when Steve, like his relationship ends, that's kind of a cash trading moment, right? And then his reaction with his reaction, his relationship, sorry, with Billy is sort of. Um, it's both a confrontation of who he could be and also kind of Billy is more male than he is. Yeah. Right. Um, and therefore defeats him. But then he's able to, to sort of reclaim the, uh, the role of man by picking up his giant, you know, bat with nails in it in order to protect children. And that's actually, you know, um, Again, that's a very kind of Lacanian thing because the idea of castration anxiety is like running running wild through that theory. And kind of the idea is that uh, 
I don't, I'm not saying that I subscribe to this. I think it sounds ludicrous when you say it out loud, but that as children and adolescents, we are all sort of convinced that, uh, we all men are all convinced that their their penises are going to fall off and then they sort of buy into this idea that well if we do what society wants us to do if we become kind of like a paterfamilias that will then uh you know that will then nail it down and make sure that uh that it never does go away right that's how you obtain uh the phallus which is of course you never actually do and then you have a midlife crisis right because like you can never actually be secure but like the the script that by becoming a protector of children one then is assured of your sort of uh status as a, an adequate man is the kind of thing that according to lacanian theory the culture is always selling us so you can absolutely yeah. see this as like a, a, a iteration of that that he needs to um spielberg like right step in and become a dad and that's when he becomes a man and it's interesting to, to add an even additional dimension because he doesn't just become a man he also becomes a woman because he becomes their mother also because there's so many jokes right about how he's their babysitter he's their mother he's there he's like taking care of the babies and also because he has the farrah fawcett spray Right. Right. That's his secret. That's his dark secret is that is that Billy is more male than he is. But Steve is more female than Billy is. And that's ultimately what makes Steve better than Billy is that he can have both in a way that Billy can't because Billy is performing his sort of Hesher Jungian symbolism of his sort of uh, abuse recapitulation. It's trying to start as his coping mechanism Uh, that that all that whole dimension. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. it's, uh, it does seem then that, like, one thing that Stranger Things is doing really well is sort of exploring the psychosexual development of adolescent males. Um, I don't think that, from my perspective, it's doing anything nearly as interesting for the, the adolescent females. Like, I like the female characters on the show, but I don't, I don't see those issues. Maybe it's because I'm less attuned to them, but, like, it just seems like it's not as interested in it, right? Yeah, yeah, because then you look at all of the other men that are doing the same thing that Steve is doing in different dimensions, like Hopper, who goes from who has this sort of loud and violent masculinity, but has to come around to the responsibility of being a family man. Bob, who is the sort of castrated family man who but because he is is steps into his proper social role, he achieves this kind of appropriate action movie death, which I guess I think uh, I think there was an ancient Greek philosopher who said that the the finest way to live was to die at the moment that you defeated the demon dogs from the other dimension. I think is is what they said. Uh, but yeah, but then when you think about stuff like like Eleven's journey, and I have to go to Eleven because the other female characters in this season are not very uh, they don't get a lot of depth. In terms of what they experience, I mean, I guess Max to an extent, but it is sort of as a vehicle for the other characters, it seems. Uh, I mean, she does get to be, she's a strong female character in the sense of being capable, but I don't, I don't think she gets a tremendous amount of depth. It seems to be kind of, and Winona Ryder, we get less of her this season. Yeah, I mean, she's still fantastic, but like, um, and I, I think that. And, you know, I think that there's there's good stuff with Max, too. I thought that the scene where she's, like, zooming around on the skateboard around Will in the gym, like, yeah. was... It's very hard to articulate how because it's kind of like between the cracks, but it was like a, a very poignant scene, and like I felt a lot for the character there. But it seemed more about like that specific character and less sure. less archetypal somehow. I mean, it breaks down like you know the boys are the party, and she's on the outside, and eventually gets in. Right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. It, the story is told very much from the male point of view. There's really no getting 
around that. Um, no. So uh, we've kind of cashed out a lot of these, this puberty stuff here, and uh, it's something that I brought up and discussed a lot in sort of the, the first podcast episode in this, but it was mostly from the perspective of Will, actually, about how his body is changing, he's losing control over it. Um, and then I think when we see it in the second half of this season, that as a metaphor or as a uh, platform for talking about puberty, it kind of breaks down because it becomes something much sort of darker and uncomfortable towards the end where we're looking at essentially like a child being tortured and then you got that whole like exorcism moment with uh smoking out the smoke monster uh mm. and like how uncomfortable and gut-wrenching that scene is to watch uh, it was pretty tough um i'm saying this as someone who's not a father uh jordan you have a son <laughs> um you might have some uh even stronger feelings than i might but i think all that is to say will's story i don't think is it turns out is not about puberty it's about something else. It's about something else, frankly, much darker and more painful. Yeah, that, that scene was really hard to watch. I, I very strongly admired it for how hard it was to watch. And again, I think that like you, you can't underestimate how good Winona Reiner is in this because like she, she absolutely sells this sense of, um, like she will do absolutely anything to save her son. But there's a couple of moments there where she's like, and then if it turns out that if I can't save my son, then I will very happily kill his body to, to like to hurt the thing that killed him. Right. Right. Um, which like, she doesn't, she doesn't have a big speech about that. She like brings it out with line readings and, and like stares and stuff like that. But the Winona eyes. Now. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm getting chills right now thinking about it. So that was, uh, I don't know though. I mean, so what do you think if it's not puberty and I think it reducing it to puberty is a little bit hard. Um, is it like a cold war thing where he's like the, the communist threat? Is it, what is it exactly? Uh, well, uh, I'll just go ahead. If I had to pin it on something, maybe just kind of like the broader, uh, environmental damage, going on to the community to the united states like essentially like his world is poison and he is suffering horribly uh because of it that's the the best that i got here pete sounds like you might have a theory oh yeah sure so the other the, the reason the way i would enter into it is that for me the most horrible scene in the season is when we realize that Eleven's mother, that the things that Eleven's mother has been saying over and over again are things that she's seeing and having to relive that horrible, horrible sequence of her life where her child is taken away and she gets the electroshock therapy, that, that she just relives this constantly over and over again for years and years. Uh, and that seems something somewhat related to what's going on. It, it, this, this, I have to introduce a text. Uh, I have to introduce a text because there's a text that I feel like season two of Stranger Things is really relating to, and I, it's hard for me to talk more about the season without referencing it, which is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this uh, particular particular movie. Um, Nancy, of course, is the the uh, little little nod that we get that this whole series is really highly engaged with the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Uh, of course, it's it's one symbol out of many, right? It's one reference out of many. But, uh, well, first of all, the Dream Warriors, first of all, they have a song for this movie uh, by the metal band Dokken, which, which is uh, something more of a, of a uh, present psychological space. The Dokken space exists in this season to a greater degree than it did in season two through a variety of different characters, most notably uh, the uh, eight who herself looks like a member of Dokken <laughs> after a fashion. Um, but, but the idea behind Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the Dream Warriors, is that they're in a, in a, in a mental hospital. 
hospital. And it's a bunch of cho- like teenagers in a mental hospital. And of course, they're dealing with Freddy Krueger, which is sort of the way that these things work. Freddy Krueger enters into the kids' dreams, and if he kills you in your dream, he kills you in real life. And the kids are all these sort of different teenage stereotypes uh, there's like a nerd and and a guy and like a rock chick right and they, and they all uh transform in their own dreams into the strongest version they can imagine of themselves and freddy krueger kills them anyway uh and so like i've been referring casually to the pittsburgh group of, ki- of kids from episode one and the episode about the other sister in uh uh, Stranger Things too, as the as the Dream Warriors because they match so superficially uh, the the sort of tableau of the Dream Warriors fighting Cre- Freddy, Freddy, uh, Freddy Krueger, uh, and the way that you beat Freddy Krueger is that you have to you have to expunge his memory. You have you have to put his bones to rest because Freddy Krueger is this guy who is a pedophile who lived in Elm Street in the old neighborhood, and the reason that the, all the children keep disappearing is because he's this thing that everybody has kind of forgotten about. But he's this psychological thing that everybody has forgotten about. And it becomes particularly surreal in the Dream Warriors, where it's this madness that is affecting everybody that's continued to exist, and you have to sort of consecrate his bones to make him go away. And in that sense, it's kind of like. The I wouldn't associate the upside down or the sort of big bad of Stranger Things 2 as being associated with like the Cold War or with puberty per se, but I would associate it with memory and uh, and I don't and I and and sort of dealing with uh, with things that you remember that are that are, of course, really painful, you know, traumatic memories, uh, echoes of previous generations, because not only are the kids trying to grow up, but they're trying to grow up in something of an imitation of their parents. I think, in the sense that that Dustin starts out in an, as an imitation of his mom in taking care of Dart, but becomes an imitation of Steve, and uh, and then like Nancy is sort of an imitation of Joyce. That's her name, right? I always call her Winona Ryder because her personality is yeah. so Joyce huge Byers, in the yeah. character. Joyce, yeah, and, um, and 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 she and so she has the relationship with Jonathan that kind of mirrors the relationship with Bob and also the relationship with Hopper. She's trying to sort of she's trying to do what Joyce is doing and kind of like being alone and being together and kind of following in her footsteps. Um, and of course, Max is struggling with the fact that her parental figure ends up being Billy, which is not really what she wants because, as he keeps insisting, they're not really related. But they can really, obviously, he's the one who brings her to school. So there's this like tension of we were brought into this world by these people under these circumstances, and it's almost like there there's this psychological sense in which they're aware or or have internalized that they are uh cho- that they are quote unquote children of the 80s <laughs> in the sense of like these characters have been brought into being by the symbols and roles and such that precede them in the culture that this series is reflecting and they are dealing with the anxieties and pains that are associated with those parents also as much as their own i mean i'm not saying all this is intentional because it's a pretty at times Surreal. I want maybe surreal is the wrong word, but yeah, I'll even venture to say it's a pretty surreal uh, kind of dreamscape season with tentacle monsters and other sorts of specters of the this the body and soul kind of all over the place. Um, I mean that that's my initial thought is that this that this has to do with with Freddy Krueger and the nightmare that that, that the villain is the nightmare 
Uh, although maybe that's also something where I'm where it will be a bigger deal mm-hmm. next season when presumably eight will be a bigger part of the show, or else we all wasted a whole lot of our time. Uh, this that's, in- that's interesting. So you're saying that like that when Will is dealing with this smoke monster in his mind, that like that that's kind of a a past trauma, maybe not his, but it it uh, it maps on to the past trauma of Eleven's mother and uh, and various other past traumas. You know, Billy's past trauma of the child abuse that we see only the tip of the iceberg yeah. of, uh, pr- presumably, right? And adds also yeah. the loss, the loss of Barb, and more specifically yeah. for Will Byers, um, uh, uh, growing up with just his mom and you know his parents being separated and his dad being a jerk, as I believe was shown in uh, ep- season one at right. some point. So it's like right. Will has like uh, when when the smoke monster enters every orifice of Will, it's like Will is taking on um, is being infected by all of the the bad memories and the trauma from all the characters. He takes that that on, um, yeah. and so that yeah. that starts to get into a little bit of kind of like the the spiritual and religious stuff uh, that uh, that the exorcism scene uh, kind of makes me think. But I, I don't have that theory sort of fully cashed out. Right. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, and I would say that it's. Um, it's interesting that it's both a political um, infestation, right? One of the episodes is called The Spy, and like Will mm-hmm. gets turned for a little while. But it's also very clearly a biological infestation and like a disease, right? So like he, he looks super sick. He's always surrounded by doctors. They have to cure him of it with like a a very, you know, a, a ye olde medieval kind of treatment. His his uh, his humors are in out of balance. We must, we must yeah. apply heat, right? <laughs> Kind of a, right, kind of right, right, right. Um, wait, so wait, so hold on. What, what, sorry, what, what humor? What's the actual treatment then? If he needs to get heat applied to him, does he have black bile? Is that what it is? Which humor? Anyway, sorry. Go on, go on. I, I'm like, I'm like going through my old Galen and trying to determine which, uh, <laughs> what, what is his illness if we know the cure. But yeah. uh, at, at any rate, continue, continue. Yeah, that, like that, that's definitely uh, that would be a like old school overthinking it post, which, <laughs> which, which you should write. I want to read it, but but yeah, like there, there's this sense that um that he's both mentally and physically corrupted, and these things are kind of the same, um, but that it's also not. Really really his fault, right? Like he's bearing past sins, even on the most uh, mechanical possible viewing of it. The reason that he is this way is because of the stuff that the Department of Energy has been doing. Um, and like, because they transgressed, now his body must be made to suffer. And we see like really in a um, in a Mel Gibson Christianity to talk about uh, various ancient, ancient authorities um, kind of way, we have to see his body bear that suffering before it can be expiated right and the the counterpoint that i would raise to uh, in opposition to that not not in sort of in opposition to the argument but the sort of uh the counterweight to that space of will and the smoke monster and barb's memory and all of this is that the dance at the end the snowball it's it's the moment for each of these kids to have their kind of coming of age moment their kind of everything is okay moment but it doesn't belong to them it belongs to posterity like 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 dances at the end of 80s movies literally travel through time and exist sort of as past events present events future events and uh uh i guess what what i'm saying here is of course it's like part of what's comforting about uh, the snowball at the end of this movie is that back to the future is comforting uh and is that pretty in pink is comforting right um and and that like 
they're not just at the dance where they had this idea. They're at the dance that has been set up for them by others, by some sort of you know psychological, meta-textual providence to give them this opportunity. Uh, and that's sort of what they're wrestling with in the same time as they're wrestling with their common pain. Uh, they also wrestle – they also get to sort of confront the common ecstasy, which yeah. is underneath the tinsel. And of course, it's it's literally set up from them for them in the sense that like the PTA did that right, right. Um, which means that it's literally set up by their parents and by sort of by social authority and the world at large. But then it also is kind of this shared cultural uh, cinematic representation of that, which we are all taking part in. And in a way, like as an audience member, when you see that school dance, you're like, ah, now I am observing the dance at the end of an 80s movie right right like it's uh it, it must be it must be fall because it's thanksgiving and uh it must be you know it must be the third sunday after easter because yada 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 and right. we sort of like go through those scripts and there's a kind of um you know a, a way in which that that is a way that you get sutured into society right that like you you do these things at your appointed time and uh Maybe at the moment, I mean, I can definitely think back to dances that I went to when I was that age, and like I was not thinking about ah, uh, as the se- the sparrows return to Capistrano, <laughs> so I will like sweat straight through my blazer while I consider perhaps going and talking to a girl. Right? I was I was in it at the moment, <laughs> but like, but the uh, the cinematic representation of it makes it feel as if they're all taking their parts, and it's especially again with Dustin like being like, now I am the Steve Harrington, right? Right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, do we want to talk more about the these dead end kids, about Eight and her crew of punk rockers, or about punk and about punk rock? I mean, gosh, that it just sticks out. It's this it's this protrusion from this season that just sort of refuses to be banged down. Yeah. Uh, that just I mean, like the the discourse around this right is that this was a terrible episode. Uh, that's that's what everyone yeah. apparently said on the internet. Saying, a I lot guess. of people people didn't like it. I read something. I don't know if this is confirmed or just hearsay that uh millie bobby brown and or her very um proactive parents push for her to have kind of a solo episode um all these things is basically say uh this doesn't fit into our platonic ideal of what a stranger things season and episode ought to be that this is just you know takes us away from the main course of action there's like remember there's this in episode six it ends in a cliffhanger with the demodogs coming out of the lab and all of a sudden smash cut to a completely different storyline that resolves and smash cut back i mean it all comes together at the end so i'm not one to really really complain about it um i I didn't enjoy it as much as the others um i'm more interested in trying to figure out what this episode was about what it represents uh and how it advanced eleven's character in particular Mm -hmm. i mean i think the first thing it's about is it's about widening the project that that the eightiesness the eightiesness of Stranger Things is not going to be confined to stories of children in small towns in Indiana, and maybe the discomfort with the the story drifting out beyond that sphere might be just a discomfort with leaving that sphere at all. Yeah, right? because like, season are, one are did it so. Kids the only people who matter. Yeah, because season one did that thing and did it so damn well. Right. right, it was right, just right, like right. this little well snow globe, for lack of a better word. Um, uh, right. That uh, yeah, that that just it just knocked it out of the park with that, and it is so rightfully so is getting more ambitious um, and wants to uh, tell a broader story with a broader palette. And sure, you got to leave right. in Indiana for that. I get that. Yeah, and of course, I mean, I, I do, I do take 
some sort of have some sort of problem with the idea that they're introduced at the very beginning, which leads you to think they're going to be very important, and then they only really show up once. Like they don't. If it would be, I think it would be better cashed out if they showed up at the end in Hawkins to participate in the final battle in some way. I think that that would have been more earned. But again, we we don't come to. We're not here necessarily to say whether it's good or bad. Um, I think everybody can sort of agree they didn't quite land. But I think it's interesting. Because, well, first of all, it introduces the idea of punk rock to the world of Stranger Things, and that says a pretty important thing concerning the the paradigm we're speaking about and speaking in. Are you talking about the uh, aesthetic know, it, or the music itself? Because remember, like, should I stay or should I go? The Clash song um, had a very large role in season one, so sonically, it's already there. Are you, are you speaking more yeah, to the aesthetics? Yeah, but suburban people who listen to the Clash aren't punk rock. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, but see the, the way that you know that those people that uh that 11 goes to visit are not punk rock is that at no point did anybody like argue about what really is and is not punk rock <laughs> <laughs> so jordan in a way isn't there argument over like you know uh, what is the appropriate way to mete out justice against those that abuse them? Is that not certain argument of what is and what is a punk rock? I mean, that's what punk rock's all about, right? It's about methods of tr- of justice in courts <laughs> and how to like how to resolve longstanding disputes with institutions and individuals. Isn't that really what punk rock is all about? It's really about settling matters. Uh, <laughs> But by the way, it's not about that. That's not what punk rock is about at all. Although, again, everybody has arguments all the time about what punk rock is about, I guess. No, I mean, to make this Uh, not a joke, right? You know, what uh, the ultimate split between eight and 11 is that eight uh, wants to go around and kill everybody who did her wrong previously uh, in the past. Uh, 11 doesn't want to do that and, in fact, stops eight from killing uh, the guy from who traumatized both of them actually right. and you know and eight's basically like this is my authentic form of, of self-expression and this is what i want to do you don't get in the way of me because yeah. this is punk this is my punk rock <laughs> it's true i really loved that line by the way i thought like it seemed like they were going to do this uh very formulaic thing where eight is getting the wrong kind of revenge and like and uh an 11 is going to live well and thus get the right kind of revenge um and i expected eight to just savagely turn on her once 11 like stepped in to save the torturer's life but the fact that she was like look your choice is fine for you but don't get in the way of my choice that's not okay was i thought like a really really interesting way for that to yeah. Yeah, it was setting it up to be like a light side of the force, dark side of the force thing. And, you know, there was plenty of Star Wars references uh, in Stranger Things, uh, but it did not it clearly did not go there. It's absolutely not that at all. Right. But uh, I, I'm I'm kind of interested in like the the rest of the team. Right. If she had just gone and seen eight and that had just been it, that would have been one thing. But the fact that, like, they have this awkward montage where it's sort of like, my name is, uh, is, is like Wild Child. I'm the, the, you know, I'm the female protagonist from the Lego movie. My name is Donatello. I do machines. Hi, I wasn't mad about you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the part that felt weird to me. I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. I, it felt familiar to me in, in the sense of like we're joking, but this is like a familiar sort of way of text. Uh, it's a familiar sort of taxonomy, this idea. So so the idea just to sort of it, this is so here what we're dealing with, I think, 
is a bit of a an intersection between where season one of Stranger Things kind of leaves off and where season two of Stranger Things kind of picks up with regards to tone and subject matter in that the the people in Eight's Posse, and I really wish that they had a collective name for themselves so that it would be easier to think and talk about them, like if they Dockin. called them Dockin. I'll call them Dockin, <laughs> even though only one of them looks like them. Well, maybe two of them look like – no, one of them looks like a member of Dockin. Uh, but but Dockin are all the people left behind in the morning in America vision of kind of 80s American renewal. They are you know, women, people of color, uh, drug addicts. Right, like these are these are the people that are that are the bad undesirables. That uh, and when I say women, I don't mean I mean like uh, women outside of the sort of relationships of marriage and motherhood and childhood and those sorts of conventional roles. Uh, The people who kind of these the outcasts, but not the outsider outcasts like Pony Boy, who are also kind of idealized in the eighties, but the ones who actually kind of aren't invited to the party, who would be more comfortable in a sort of a seventies kind of story, uh, are the ones that uh, that show up here, and they're they're not welcome in Hawkins. They they, if they walk down the street, uh, they you know Hopper would probably go over and tell them that they should move along to the next town, Uh, right? Um, And in a way that I think makes us a little bit less comfortable about the self-proclaimed safety of places like Hawkins. But then at the same time, yes, there's social outcasts, but this isn't an episode about social – this isn't a season about social political dynamics. It's a season about psychological dynamics. And so the sense question is like who are these people psychologically? What what are they all about? And the answer is that they are 80s people. (laughs) They are 80s fiction people in that they each have one or two characteristics that define who they are, and everything else about them is entirely irrelevant. (laughs) And this gives them a certain sort of superpower, I guess. Uh, And it's this sort of comic book person. Not even comic book because comic books have more depth but cartoon people these are these are this is a saturday morning cartoons crew uh there you go they're like heathcliff and riffraff uh Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, but uh but like but 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 cast out of the undesirables of reaganomics (laughs) right which i guess riffraff is and heathcliff is not but uh i'm not sure i don't know what what do you is that does that get us any closer to any sort of understanding of these people yeah although i don't know if it's specifically an 80s thing because like i'll I'll say the the thing that i thought about the most when i was watching them sort of go down their uh their receiving line was um that very specific like 20 minutes in the matrix where you meet morpheus's whole crew and then they're killed Right. Right. Because they're all introduced about like that and have about that much development. But the reason why is because like they need to have a bunch of warm bodies to become cold in order to make the stakes be real. Right. Right. So I, I expected them all to die at that point. Uh-huh. But that, that's not what happens. Um, and I would say that another place that you'll often see this is in like pilots of TV shows. Right. Like if there's right. a cop show and you want to introduce like, oh, this is the lab tech guy. This is the one who like who uh, has a little bit of training in, in, in psychology or something like that. This this is the one that's not white, right? You, right? you kind of like you go through and you uh, you hit all of those things, and it's really awkward. But you're like, well, this is a pilot episode, right? This is why right. you, you kind of have to have that happen. And I feel like the the beat that everybody wanted the show to hit that it kind of missed is to have it feel like um, this gang that eight has is what eleven and the party could become 
given right. time right, right. Like left, left to oh. left to uh, left to nature like they will eventually fall out of society because they have seen through through the illusion and they there's no place for them in society anymore and they'll end up like knocking over convenience stores and running around killing department of energy employees because like once you have seen the truth that's kind of the only the only option that's there for you so i wanted it to be something where like 11 is not only seeing eight as like the um the 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 dark mirror link that she has to fight just as Billy is Steve Harrington's, but that I wanted there to be a point where she like looks over at like the you know the the B squad and thinks, oh wait, I don't want to do that to I don't want to do that to Mike, you know? Mm. Yeah, because the because Mike and company get to reintegrate into society at the end of season two. Yeah, as, as does eleven, right? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. And meanwhile, here I am sitting here that the one thing that frustrates me more about this team than anything else is that they have a Chevy van rather than a GMC van. Because if it was just a, sim- a different General Motors product, they could be the A-team. But they're not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am, was like, this I is am, such a huge oppor- missed opportunity, man. They're so close to Mr. T. And he's just not there. I hate, like, it, I hate it when a reference doesn't come together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that makes a lot of sense that this is sort of like that. But that, it's also kind of uncomfortable then because that means that all of these people who for, uh, you know, real life sociological reasons are on the fringes are actually these sort of morally and psychologically less desirable versions of our happy suburban children. Right. Like, remember, yeah. the, remember the traumas that they go through? I don't remember the specifics, but they, they, they went through some like really bad stuff. I mean, eight obviously went through her horrible government experience, experiment business. But the others uh, well, like, you know. Uh, wrongly convicted of a crime or something like that maybe like someone else was like sexually abused as a child they went through some really stuff tough stuff and then wound up on the outs um and using the uh, 11's gang right the party uh, as a um as an analog to that they've gone through unconventional more unconventional traumas right they've seen the upside down uh well will in in his case like he's been uh, abused in all sorts of different ways right um so it is kind of a weird distinction uh, that uh, these folks who have gone through this real stuff uh, are are seen as lesser, but uh, the party that's gone through the supernatural stuff, like, well, well, they'll be fine. They'll integrate back into society. It's interesting. I, yeah, go for it. I, I think I saw someone, I think it was um, the writer N.K. Jemison on Twitter saying that, like, uh, you have these two lab subjects who are both out there, like, being real angry. And then, like, the white girl's rage is, like, redemptive and awesome. And the, the person of color's rage is, like, toxic and bad and a model of what you don't want to be in the world. And, like, I'm sure that that wasn't their plan from the get go, but it's maybe a little unfortunate that it worked out that way. <laughs> Yeah. Although I do, Again, I do it doesn't like, totally go there, though, right? Like, yeah. I understand, like, you know, it's Twitter, you got to be short and reductive, but uh, Callie's not, uh, eight is not a, a complete malevolent force of evil, the dark side thing, like I mentioned before. Yeah, right. It's, it's sort of like, if, if you say, when you say it like that, you can't say that it's not what's going on, but they do, it's the kind of thing where, like, I left that episode feeling only good things about Callie, um, and then, like, read the discourse around and was like, oh, 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 but wait. I think it's worth it to consider the moment, I'm trying to think about what moment from them felt most meaningful for me, because a lot of what they do feels kind of cheap, just because it's so cliche, as you've mentioned. But I think the moment where they go into the convenience store and it forces the clerk to see the flood of feces. 
I feel like is an interesting in the context of everything we've talked about, right? Where yeah. it's like, because I mean, from a Lacanian standpoint, that's not the real; it's the imaginary. But it's like twisting the relationship between the real and the imaginary, in that it's really a bathroom, and people like to think that that what's going on behind the closed door of the bathroom isn't happening. But let me confront you with the reality of what's happening in the bathroom. Except I won't show you the reality of what's happening in the bathroom. I'll show you a fantastical imaginary recreation that I've made of what's happening in the bathroom that will horrify you and dispossess you from your possessions, which I will now take from you. Uh, it's, it's just interesting, this idea of like, you think you don't have to look at this. You have to look at this. And I'm res- I'm resisting using the S word so we don't get any chili peppers in our Eudora filters uh, as, as such. But, uh, but that's kind of, it's interesting from a sociological standpoint. It's interesting from a psychological standpoint uh, that this, that these are the people who want to force you to look at the poop. Yeah. Uh, and that's and, also, that's yeah. also very punk rock, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's not so much épater la bourgeoisie as it is like force the bourgeoisie to be aware of feces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so in answer to your question, that's what punk rock is. <laughs> ah, excellent. Spectacular. I think my work here is done. <laughs> Uh, so do we have anything to say as we get closer to the end of our discussion of this season just about streaming and binging in general we tried this experiment this time around of using a little bit of portion control it kind of took us a while to come around to the second round of talking about stranger things but it did feel to me at least like a bit more natural of a pace to assimilate and discuss this stuff but in terms of engaging with it getting what you can get out of it enjoying it because it is entertainment it's supposed to be fun uh as well as interesting and it is art so it's supposed to be interesting but it's entertainment so it's supposed to be fun i mean is there are we uh, where does this leave us with regards to streaming and binging i guess is uh, after either our little experiment and after all the events of hawkins I can say this. I remember when you guys uh, did the first episode on this and I was listening to it and you talked a lot about like streaming and, and that kind of stuff. And, uh, about how it's changed the world. And I would say that one way that it's changed the world is that we now have a new emotion, which we probably need a complicated German name for, which is the experience of firing up Netflix and seeing the like, keep watching X thing and feeling that's a good show. I like that show. I want to keep watching that show. I don't want to keep watching that show. And there's like a particular flavor of sadness that comes from realizing that you're not going to watch the back half of something that I don't think I would have ever experienced absent streaming. Mm. Because That's it's sort, really of con- sort of contingent on its being right there, right? Like, all I have to do is reach out and touch the button. Um, it's not like uh, if, I, if I lose track of a show that is coming out every week and it's just like, oh, I haven't watched this for the past three weeks. I guess I don't really care about it, right? It sort of, like, builds over time. Um, but here, it's right there. All I need to do is make the decision to be interested in it again, and I can watch the whole back half. Uh, but then, like, not doing that. Uh, makes me sad in a very particular way. I think you're hitting Netflix's business strategy with this right on the nail, or right, right on the hitting that nail right on the head. In that they just like overwhelm you with this, this, the volume of this value of the subscription that you got. It's like, bam, nine episodes right here. You want it? You got it right here. Look at this. So awesome. Come on. It's like Billy, you know, in the in the in the in the locker room. Come on, get at these shows. <laughs> um, or at least that's that's my read on it. Um, uh, Billy pr- Billy probably doesn't know a fancy German word for that. Yeah. It's just like it's awesome. Um, uh, my feeling on this mostly is just a sense of frustration about how it's very difficult to have a 
contemporaneous joint cultural conversation around this. And this is not new at all. Everybody's been hand-wringing about this uh, since uh, binging became a thing. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we uh, most of us, I think, finished watching Stranger Things in early November uh, when the episodes, not maybe within a week or two of the episodes first dropping. And here we are in the uh, middle of December finally getting around to recording it and, and talking about this and uh it's, time has passed the discourse has moved on talking about other things um i had the experience of uh, recapping and watching star trek week after week and uh and oh well, the show was not as good as stranger things but the conversation at least was something that um we all had more or less together at the same time on the site in the comments on twitter with other uh, uh other people making commentary and we do have a podcast uh on star trek discovery coming up by the way so stay tuned for that, I mean, that guess kind of undermines my argument that you know, we didn't release that podcast uh, contemporaneously. We're saving it up for later, but yeah, I'm frustrated by it. That's that's my take. Yeah. What do you think about this for a business model, right? Like it's um it's analogous to to speed dating or something like that, where you rent out a bar, or a coffee shop, and basically you put up as a syllabus. Uh, all of the prestige TV that is currently available streaming. And you can come there and pay like, you know, $5 to the event organizer to sit down at a table and talk to people who have just watched this stuff and are excited to talk about it right now. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't know (laughs) the German word for not being able to watch the back half of a streaming show that you liked the first half of. But I think I know someone who would know it, and that would be the man in the high castle, I think, would know. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think it's time to call this episode to a close. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jordan. And thank you to everybody who had a part in making Stranger Things 2, which was really enjoyable to watch. One quick plug. Please come by OverthinkingIt.com and check out our holiday gift guide. It's bigger than ever. It's more comprehensive than ever. It's perhaps a little more grown up than it's ever been been in terms of the kinds of gifts uh, and the kinds of expertise that it shares. So if you've got an overthinker in your life that you want to give a gift to, we have many, many recommendations of things that I think won't just be appropriate, but will be a little bit special. So please come check out our gift guide. Also check out the new Overthinking It merch. If you've ever wanted uh, a cap with Otis, our cloud mascot on it, a t-shirt, and you've wrung your hands at what possible madness could have caused us to not offer one for the first t- nine years of the site's existence. Well, now's your chance to come check out our merch. Uh, please do. Uh, but, but of course, if you want to have conversations about any of this stuff. If you want to share your thoughts about Stranger Things, come to the site anyway. We've got comment threads, we've got community, we got good vibes, and as always, we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Your Eudora reference is uh, 290s. This is an 80s thing going on here. You're going to have to wait a solid decade for a prestige streaming drama where you can drop a Eudora Chili Peppers reference. Sorry, Pete. I'm sorry. I'm not here right now. But if you leave a message after the beep, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. Beep. Was that 80s enough for you, Mark? <laughs> Totally. (laughs) Okay, righteous, tubular, bodacious.